Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with Linda Chapman on clinical applications of attachment therapy in children and adolescents. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chadak with another guest to speak with us about application of attachment theory to clinical practice. My guest today is Linda Chapman. She is a retired board certified art therapist She is living in Redwood Valley, Northern California. She has been in the past affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She was there for 25 years where she held clinical faculty and research appointments. Uh, She also is a nationally recognized expert in art therapy and play therapy with children who are victims of violence, child abuse, and trauma. She's the author of the book, Neurobiologically Informed Trauma Therapy with Children and Adolescents, Understanding Mechanisms of Change. She's also written numerous peer-reviewed papers on child therapy, play therapy, art therapy, trauma therapy. And um, I am super excited to have her here today. She's been an adjunct faculty at many universities and taught and lectured throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe. She's also a part of a group called Playful Dyads, which uh, she will be talking about in our interview today. I'm so thrilled that she is going to be here with us. I learned of Linda's work while I was doing a previous series about using expressive arts in attachment-based therapy. And so stay tuned. She will be coming right up. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We've designed an experience in a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So Linda, I'm so excited to continue our conversation today about your work. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, so so last week we talked about a bit of your early journey, of your interest in trauma, your time in pediatrics um, at the hospital with these uh, acute traumas and with gang members, and talked about your um, the your Chapman model um, of assessment, the Chapman art therapy treatment intervention. I want to call it the right the right thing. Um, now we're going to move into how you began to apply 
apply attachment theory and what you learned in your study group that you were in with Alan Shore and how you then expanded your model to, you know, well beyond where you started. So I'm so looking forward to that. So your model is called the neurodevelopmental art therapy model. So let us continue on your journey of development with this. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, like I said, when I went into private practice, I wasn't seeing people in the acute setting. I lost yes. a few, but most of them were children with much more complex problems and child abuse and things like that. And my studies with Alan Shore really helped me begin to see that I could put together attachment behaviors that the organism would respond to. And I want to make sure people, the listeners understand the child does not become attached to me. The child becomes attached to their own caregiver. Yes. What they, what happens is if we go back to earliest points of development, when a, an infant is born, for example, it can only see the mother's face or that proximity because the sensory systems are not developed very much at all. As that child can tolerate more stimulation, they become more interested in the larger environment and other people and things like that. The, 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 most, the developmental task in that first year of life is to establish an attached, secure attachment with a primary caregiver. And within that experience is the development of the sensory motor systems. Yes. And what I found when I began to see these children who were diagnosed with ADHD and bipolar and all these things, I was trained enough to be able to do a, a rudimentary sensory motor evaluation with them, just with drawings. Yes. And it's not any interpretations that I'm making. They're either subject, they're not subjective. They're either the indicators are there neurologically or they're not. Okay. And I found that all these children had learning, had um, sensory motor delays. So I began to turn the first couple 10 minutes, 15 minutes of every session into doing rudimentary sensory motor activities. And as I began to do this, I saw that it made a really big difference in not only how they participated in therapy, but a lot of these children with learning disabilities, with ADHD, all these things were making remarkable progress. Now, as the attachment part came in there, what I saw was that when I engaged these children in attachment behaviors, it filled in those early, um, those critical uh, experiences they're supposed to have at different times in development that they missed. Yes. You can go back and you can do those again. So for example, I know these things sound odd, but they really work. I, when I come to therapy as the therapist in my role, I always wore black clothes, black jeans, black t-shirt, black that shoes, the same exact jewelry, the same everything. And these children would only get the affect from my face, just like they would from a mother early in development, right? I also made sure that they're in the beginning of therapy, all I focused on was safety. Every time they would do something unsafe, I'd say, oh, you know, my job is to keep us safe here, so we have to keep safe. And I learned that just like an infant, these children need to be reassured on these same levels that an infant would. In other words, the level of safety they need to hear about is not what I think is important. It's what a traumatized child would need or an infant. They need that constant reassurance, you see. Yes, yes. I mean, that's not strange to me at all as, as somebody who practices and teaches theraplay because that's you know, exactly. kind of a, a big part of of our idea on this i do want to ask just for a quick clarification 
So the same clothes and the same jewelry and the black, was that um, to create safety? Like there was no, no not- to create that the, just like an infant, the only place they can get affect is from okay. looking at Okay, it. okay, okay. And I don't okay. talk very much in the beginning of therapy. I let them get to know me by observing. Right. Okay. Um, I move slower. I speak slower because they have yes. a lot of auditory processing problems and things. So I make the environment so comfortable. Mm-hmm. When they come in, I have a snack there. Mm-hmm. And they, like for one of my um, really violent teens, he came in and I had this snack there. And then he said to me, well, you know, I really like pizza. And I said, oh, so the next time he came, I had pizza and he walked in and he saw that pizza. And in the voice of a three-year-old, he said, you know how to take care of me. Oh, so that's... we're setting up these yes. things that go back and they, there's a lot of peekaboo played, a lot of things, early, early developmental things that they instigate mm-hmm. because we're back in that time in development. Yes. The other things I do is I make sure that they're comfortable. Like, is it too hot in here? Is it too cold? Yes. Um, I notice a lot of what they do and pay really close attention to letting them know I see them just like a mother would with an infant. Um, I also make sure that um, the, uh, like when they come, I'm at the door waiting to them. Mm -hmm. I don't expect them to go to, an infant wouldn't go to a waiting room and have their mother come and say, now it's your turn to come and talk to me. So Mm -hmm. they see me when they come, I wave to them and then I step away from the door. And when they leave, I'm waving to them and they don't even notice it for like three or four months. And all of a sudden they notice it. And then they wave every single time they come and every single time they go. And so we're going back to these earlier experiences that they would normally have that they missed. Mm -hmm. And from Alan, my work with Alan, I've learned to trust that I can create a state of attunement with these children. We create this, we co-create this intersubjective field where we can both exist in a mutually co-regulated state. And these, Im- I get these incoming images from, the, from them, for example, just like a mother. The child doesn't tell the mother, I need a diaper change or I'm hungry. The child communicates all these things non-verbally to an attuned mother. Mm-hmm. And so in my creating these states of attunement with these child, they will give me, I usually get them in images, things I used to do and I need to do to meet those needs. So for example, I'll give you an example of one teen, this 18 year old, very violent teen. He wanted a rolling pin to roll out some clay and I didn't have one, but I had a, a tube in my locked up cabinet in another room. And I said, well, I have a mailing tube that you can use. And on the way to the cabinet, I had this overwhelming image to come back and hold it up to my eye and say, I see you. Mm-hmm. And I thought he's going to say, what's the matter with you? You're out of your mind or something. But the image was so strong that when I came back in the room and held it up and said, I see you, he grabs a tube out of this box and held it up to my, me and said, in the voice of a three-year-old, I see you too, do it again. And he jumped behind the plant and I went, I see you. And we played this like peekaboo game for a few minutes. And then he put it on the table and said, well, that was really fun. And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. that was fun to play. But you see, he's going back and having these yes. experiences that are missed. Another yes. with the same teen was he went AWOL from his group home and was involved with law enforcement almost every week, but it was a big, huge deal. And even before he came, I was sure that I was not going to be punitive. I wasn't going to be judgmental. And he came in and he started talking about him being out late and everything. And at one point he said that he could protect himself with his butter knife. And I said, well, I don't think you can because people have more dangerous weapons and everything. And then he goes, well, it's no big deal. 
And I just started wagging my finger at him. And I was saying, don't you ever do that again. You could be hurt. You could be, you know, this, you could have been injured. And I, I just wagged my finger even. And I said, I don't want you to ever do that again. And he in the board voice of a bored adolescent said, okay. But you know what? He never went AWOL from that group home again. And you see, he wanted someone to tell him, you can't do that. You see, you see how it works. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, we were, I, I have to, I feel like we're kindred spirits here. <laughs> because, you know, I'm reminded of um, a colleague of mine. I, I have to share this, um, Michelle Robinson. And she was in a, I work at a place that does residential treatment, has residential treatment. So, you know, these are pretty out of control kids. And she um, had a boy that she was working with. And when he came into the session, he crinkled a, a soda can by her ear and she went <gasps> like this, just like you would with a baby, you know, a, a toddler. <gasps> and he did it over and over and over. And she knew he was needing to see this, <gasps> this, you know, over exaggerated delight and excitement. And she knew he was seeing, like you're saying, she felt so strongly. Oh, I, I got to keep this going. He's needing, yeah. this. he's wanting this. And just to explain it neurobiologically, what Alan says is that it's a two person therapy and a two person biology. And it's right amiglia to right amiglia communication. It's from Cognitive unconscious now to affective unconscious. Yes. So the expert therapist now doesn't create interpretations. They process and regulate the patient's unconscious bodily-based affective state. So it's a very different thing. But I will say that by doing these little sensory motor integration uh, reparative things each session, these children would go out and interact with their parents in a completely different way because they're yes. regulated. They're able to relate in a different way. Instead of going out there and demanding things, they would go out and ask, could we go get candy or whatever? And so the parents begin to relate different. So their relationship shifts. Yes. So I don't have access to all the parents. The ones I did, I could see that the child became attached to their own parent. And one little boy, you know, he began to say, I want to make a present for my mom. And, you know, you can see that the, the affinity is going to the parent. And yes. So make sure the listeners know that they don't become attached to me at all. Mm -hmm. They become attached to their own caregivers. But the focus is and the, on and the caregivers. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, but, but because they are different, the caregiver responds to them differently, right? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. this whole process because we see this very we saw this very much in the early days with Theraplay working with kids in the head starts there was no involvement with the parents but the parents felt the children change almost like they liked the children better oh I've had so many parents tell me I hated my child until they came to you and now I love my child it's a huge thing when. And so what do you, what do you want to tell listeners from a neuro, neurobiological perspective is happening there? Well, I think what happens is that the child becomes able to be related to and the parents yes. and the child create this state of yes. their own attunement, their own. Yes. Ability, because the mother is going to be able to do this if she's able. And I right. think sometimes these children are so out of control and dysregulated and reactive that the parent doesn't know what to do. They don't right, know how to right. engage and they don't know how to regulate that unconscious affect. Yes. 
And so, and, you know, I worked very closely with child psychiatry because many of my children were medicated, the children I saw were medicated. And the child psychiatrist, just from these sensory motor reparative things, yes, these children would be flunking everything in school. And in three months, they would be C students. And in six months, they would be A, B students. Mm -hmm. So once you get what I call the plumbing electricity of the lower structures of the brain working properly, then the limbic and the cognitive structures work just fine. It's like Bruce Perry's model. Yes. Sequential therapy. He starts with the lower structures, getting those in place, and then everything else works. And if you think about how important it is, the child psychiatrist would lower the medications almost every couple of weeks. And it got to the point where she would tell them, take these meds, but go to art therapy because she can get you off these meds in a matter of months. Yes. I can't believe what happens when you do these reparative things. And if you think about the ramifications long-term, 44% of our prison population has learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is huge that these yes. kids have information processing. And that's what it is. Sensory motor is taking in information from the environment, organizing it, and being able to put meaningful output. And those 44% of those people with those learning disabilities, some of the disorders, such as auditory processing, are as high as 70%. So mm-hmm. we have to really start looking at not only our education system, but what we're doing to these children by not allowing their brains to develop properly. Yeah. It's all these things that are interrupting it. And I'll just get on my soapbox for one minute, which Please is do. you need to look at mothering as a, the most important thing during the first year. Mothers need to be home with their children. And I know it's a big leap, but we've got to figure out a way to make this work because mothering is not a side job. That first year is the entire development of the concept of mind, body, self. And when we fail that, this is where it's like I say, the organism knows what it needs. And it's when we interfere that we mess it up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I just want to add before I get off some of these things I do is the last one I do a lot is I look at that child with my left eye to their left eye. Yes, I have that in my notes. And I was going to yeah. ask you to talk about that. And what that does is it replicates that early infant mother right hemisphere to right hemisphere communication. And I will tell you that once you start looking left eye to left eye with clients, pretty soon that's all they do is look at you with left eye to left eye. And when these teens wanted to tell me something important, they would say my name and I would look at them and they would zoom in with that left eye to left eye to tell me. It's so profound of a thing to do. I cannot even begin to tell you how much it changes. Some of the teens that would come to see me I always allowed like 90 minutes for the first session because some of them would take them a half an hour to even get in the car from the group home. And so like an infant, you have to go by their schedule, not even an hour thing. And they'd come in with their arms folded and they'd be just like, so like defiant. You could just see they wanted to just lash out. And I would just stand there and look at them with my left eye, left eye. And pretty soon their arms would drop down. The shoulders would drop. And then they would start chatting with me. It's a very, very useful tool left eye to left eye. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm also thinking about what you were talking about earlier with, um, when you are getting the lower part of the brain in order, so to speak, I've also seen in my own work that 
ancillary services, not, I'm not talking education, occupational therapy, speech mm-hmm. therapy, things like this. After you have been working with the children and adolescents in this way, those folks are saying, oh, my goodness. Yes. Like what what's going on now? Speech is advanced like it's exploding. Everything I it's like everything they're trying to do starts working. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, because, see, that's the, the, the basis for everything is having what I call the plumbing and the electricity working properly. Then everything builds on that. Mm-hmm. If you're only getting every fifth word that somebody's saying, how can you possibly cope in an education setting? How right. can you possibly have social interaction with peers that isn't, you're not going to get you teased or humiliated? I mean, it's it's profound, these delays. And I think a lot of the delays are because in the in the day in the past education system, children had recess, they had a lot of motor activity, they went outside and played, they did all they had art. Things. I mean, some yeah, places they had are all these things that develop the sensory motor yeah. systems, and now those things have all been removed. And music. And a lot and music. And a lot of parents don't have much face time. And Alan talks a lot about face time with infants. As that's what develops that mind-body self is that postnatal interactions with a primary caregiver. And a lot of parents now are on their phones and they don't do that FaceTime with the child the way that it used to be. And so these sensory systems are just not developed properly. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't take much. Like I said, these children would change in three months. One little girl that I saw was five years old and she would draw, her teacher said, well, I don't know what to do because she writes one letter here and then the other letter of her name on the other side of the page at the bottom and then the other one at the top. And so I just saw that she had all these visual perceptual problems. So I started doing these very simple little interventions for about 10 minutes of each session, only once a week. And in three months, the teacher said, I don't know what that woman's doing, but don't stop because now she can write her name on the line. She can write, she can spell, she can do all these things that she couldn't do. So it does sound too good to be true, Karen, but the truth is the organism is designed a particular way. And it's when we interfere with the organism developing the way that it should, that things go awry, you see. Yes, yes, that whole um, developmental perspective, um, you know, and yeah, it's it's so important. Well, I know um, with your watching our time here um but with your neurodevelopment neurodevelopmental model of art therapy you have these four phases yeah um maybe if we could talk about those just briefly that you know organizes people's thinking about some of what we're talking about yes and i just want your listeners to know that the brief intervention is in my book all the interventions for sensory motor stuff that I do is in chapter four of my book. Okay. And all these model of treatment is in there as well. All the interventions that I do and examples and a lot of case material, just so they know. So okay, they good. Get it right here. They can follow up with that. But it's a four stage model. The first stage is the self phase. And that's where we develop the physical and self, the physical homeostasis is what I'm achieve, trying to achieve there. So that's yes. where I look at the sensory motor, all these different aspects of getting the physical self sort of in tune and up and running. And that can be as simple as 10 or 15 minutes with every session, 
or it may be some children don't have those delays. And so it can be a very short part of the therapy is that self phase. Do you ever work in conjunction with an OT with some of that phase? I refer a lot of kids to OT because I can only do certain things. I can't do auditory processing delays, for example. So I send them, but I'll just tell you, there's so many kids referred to me for quitting school. And I'd ask them why, what do you, what prevents you from going to school? They can't stand the noise in between classes. It's Ah. so I would send them to a sensory motor uh, occupational therapist for auditory processing evaluation. They'd have a few weeks of treatment back in school with no problems. How many children quit school because of these delays and we're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then the next month phase And there's no distinct criteria for moving from the self phase to the problem phase, but there's usually something that comes up. Like, for example, a child might say to me, well, you know, when I told you that I was the best kid in school and I had the most friends, and I'll say yes, and they'll say, well, that's not really the truth. (laughs) Then I know that now they're willing, they got the structures, the, the lower structure of the brain are intact enough that now they can tolerate moving to these other issues that we want to deal with so the problem phase is where we develop the emotional self and we achieve that emotional homeostasis Mm -hmm. so in the problem phase we look at how i act in my anger how i act out my anger you know all different kinds of things that have to do with that emotional self Mm -hmm. and then the next phase i call the transformation phase and this is where we achieve cognitive homeostasis but this is also where children move forward and then they fall back a little bit. Like for example, children who are in substance abuse for substance abuse therapy, they will be clean, but then in transformation plays that they may come back and say, well, you know, I I smoked pot last week just to see what it was like. So Mm -hmm. I expect that this is where they move forward a little bit, then they go back and Mm -hmm. then they move forward again. So here's where we explore all these things that have to do with ways of being in the world and coping and all those kind of things. And then the last phase is really very short. It's called integration phase. And it's um, sort of the ending of therapy where I look to make sure the symptoms are reduced, that they have what I call adaptive coping mechanisms. They have a support system. We may have had to redefine relationships there with abuse perpetrators of abuse. They don't want to be around those people anymore. So that's where we kind of expand it to the larger community sort of thing. Yes. So the most critical phases are those first three. The last one is more just about termination. But I have specific interventions that I do at each phase, but those are not session to session. I try to encourage as much of them, their own free art that they want, because that's really what the best thing is. But I introduce these when they bog down or they don't know what to do next. And I'll pop up with one of these interventions or introduce. Sometimes they don't know what they want to do. And I might say, well, you might want to try this or this. But once they get into their own art, that's really where the magic happens is when they're invested and they get a project that they want to do over time and all these things occur within their own art making. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I know that uh, I was reading different reviews on your your book um, and, you know, someone said, well, first I thought, Oh, I'm not an art therapist, so I'm not going to read this. But then they said, but it's so much more, you know. And uh, so it, it seems like you have a very broad definition of, of art therapy or I don't know. I, I think for some folks, if, when you speak with them and I know because I've just done a, 
I, I just did a series, you know, that's how I mm-hmm. got to know more about you through Gussie Clore and some art therapists are, would feel very upset somebody just starting to do art in their sessions without, you know, proper training, which I understand that. Of course, I understand that it's a separate discipline, but you seem to have a way of doing this where you're, um, you're suggesting some of these things can be used more broadly. These ideas and concepts, it's not only about an art therapist if i'm hearing how how do you delineate the difference that's a great question because many art therapists do have they feel like they own art therapy and no one should do it unless they're an art therapist and i understand that and i respect that i come from the school of right brain psychotherapy and so when i look at right brain psychotherapy i see sand tray i see play therapy i see art therapy dance movement therapy I'm not a dance movement therapist or a sand tray expert. I don't do those things. I do art. And what I find is that I had people come to my trainings who weren't art therapists. And what they mostly said was, now I want to get more training in art therapy because they see that they don't know, they can't do what I'm doing. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I feel like every therapist out there that works with children has art materials pretty much in their in their. Um, in their therapy office, they have toys, they have things. And once we start owning it, I think that's where it becomes nobody benefits. What I think we do have to do though, is promote that in order to call yourself an art therapist, you do have to be trained, you have to be, you know, credentialed, et cetera. But you can also utilize these modalities, but you're only going to use them to the extent that you're trained. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to be able to do the same thing that an art therapist can do with the materials because you're not trained in those things. Some people say, well, you can cause people to have problems and all these things by you know, doing things that you don't know what you're doing, but people are doing it anyway. I think it's better to educate people about how to use materials and the cautionary things than to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. I forget which philosopher it was who said take my theory. I don't care who, who I'm who's using them as long as they're being used. And I feel like there's not, you know, the, the art is so universal. I think it's when you start making interpretations or you start trying to be directive or those kind of things, you can get into much more trouble, but a child just drawing a picture and you ask them then to tell about it and talk about it brings up issues for any therapist. Right. Lower. Right. Right. So I understand it's a really tricky thing, um, but my my definition is a little broader. That I think I'm looking at it through the lens of right brain psychotherapy, mm-hmm. which I think is Alan says it's dominant in therapy now. It's the way everything is moving, and I just think that art and play and sand tray and all these things we've been doing this for 50 years. And I have to add TheraPlay because that is an extremely right brain oriented therapy. But that's what I mean. Yes. TheraPlay, all the different types. Yes. All those things have been used for a long time with no uh, credibility. And now with right brain psychotherapy becoming dominant, people are seeing the value of these nonverbal modalities. Um, so I think it's really an exciting thing, actually. Yes, yes. And uh, looking at, you know, how those models, as you're saying, are congruent with 
our understanding of neurobiology, our understanding of trauma and all of that. So, yeah, well, um, before we end here today, Linda, I know you you we want to make sure we also um, tell people about the playful dyads. I, I, we haven't talked about that yet. So if you want to share about that or your book or anything that you want to talk about. I'll just mention a few resources. Yes, Um, please do. I think uh, Attachment in Action is one of the best. Your (laughs) podcast is fabulous for therapy types. But um, Playful Diaz is an entity, a platform that we created. A a few of us from the Allen Shore study groups got together and created this platform for educating people, offering trainings and things in right brain psychotherapy. And we had our key, our speaker at the end of the year this year was Alan, who did a wonderful presentation. So that's a really wonderful format for learning about right brain psychotherapy. And there's a Dr. Madeline DeLittle is a sand tray um, therapist. I'm an art therapist. There's different people involved, but you might want to look at that. It's playfuldiads.org. As I said, my colleague, Carrie McCarthy, it's M-A-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y. She wrote Startup. And that's, I did it with her, but that's a school-based curriculum for Native American and other youth. And it has all these sensory motor things and then one self-building activity. And it's designed for the whole school year. So many okay. therapists buy this book because they can turn each one of those into a therapy session. It's called Startup. So it's Startup. And then her website for all the trainings in all this is startupartherapy.com. Okay. Yeah. And my book is Neurobiologically Informed Trauma Therapy for Children and Adolescents. Yes. All right. Well, I just want to thank you again for your time, sharing the wealth of information that you have. It's been just really a pleasure to talk with you, Linda. Thank you. Well, thank you, Karen. And I just want to say thank you so much for what you do with this podcast, because I think this information is so important for our world and our cultures now. So thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 